The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. The influence of the late Pope Benedict is difficult to overestimate. He had a long career to begin with. He was the church's preeminent theologian during the term of his predecessor, John Paul II. He was there at the center of things in Vatican II, and he had a significant interest in Lutheran theology, a Roman Catholic pope with an interest in Luther and Lutheran theology. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the late Pope Benedict's study of Lutheran theology, Pastor Andrew Garricky. He's pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Omaha, Nebraska. He's author of a Master of Sacred Theology thesis titled Cooperatoris Sacrifici, an examination of Joseph Ratzinger's critique of Luther on the sacrifice of the Mass in light of the influences of resourcement and liturgical movements. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure for this longtime listener to be a first-time guest. What role did Joseph Ratzinger play in the pontificate of his predecessor, John Paul II? Well, he was a part of the conclave that elected him. At the time, he was Archbishop of Munich. He was already a member of several Vatican committees, in the early years of John Paul II's papacy, he tried to get Ratzinger to come to Rome full-time, but it was not until 1981 that he consented to the appointment as prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Perhaps the two most significant highlights of his time there, almost 15 years, are the production of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as well as his role in the Joint Declaration of the Doctrine of Justification. In 1986, Pope John Paul II appointed a commission to draft a catechism. There hadn't been one produced since the Second Vatican Council in the 60s, and Cardinal Ratzinger was the chair, and that catechism came out in 1992. It's been revised a few times. It was in the headlines a couple years ago. Pope Francis made a change. But that catechism is the best summary for current teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. If you want to know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on something, that's the place to go. The second major influence Ratzinger had on the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was leading up to 1999, the Vatican and the Lutheran World Federation had been engaged in a series of talks working towards some consensus or reconciliation on the doctrine of justification. And it came out that there was a bit of a snag on the Vatican's end, particularly from Ratzinger's congregation. They were concerned with making clear that in spite of these talks and the progress, there were still differences in understanding between Lutherans and Roman Catholics on some terminology. And yet it ended up being Ratzinger helped draft a document clarifying how Lutherans and Roman Catholics could agree on phraseology in the main document, what was eventually signed at Augsburg. But that was because, and the statement makes this point, because they each understood terms in their own respective senses. For example, 
this document lays out how Catholics can affirm the language of simul justus et peccator, but not in the same way Lutherans do, but simply that the Catholic Church allows a sense in which that can be said. That document called the Annex to the Joint Declaration, still on the Vatican website today, bears Ratzinger's stamp and influence. What was the source of Ratzinger's interest in Lutheran theology? He was a German, and Luther, quite simply, is an inescapable force in Germany, even simply on a cultural level. Before being appointed Bishop of Munich, Ratzinger was a professor at a number of universities in Germany. He taught on the Catholic theology faculties, but he had colleagues on the evangelical theology faculties. One Vatican correspondent has said that Lutherans are to Ratzinger what the Eastern Orthodox are to John Paul II, the separated brethren that he knows best. Throughout his whole career, Ratzinger read Luther, he knew the confessions, he took them up in his lectures, he cites them regularly in his writings. You could say he was more knowledgeable of and comfortable with Lutheran writings than many Lutherans are today. He was known to encourage Lutherans to take their own confessions seriously, because that's where true dialogue can take place. He certainly did that from his own position as a Catholic theologian. I think that's why many Lutherans can appreciate Ratzinger. He's a faithful, trustworthy partner in dialogue. So what is the, the Catholic teaching of the sacrifice of the Mass? That's a very important question with a very long history. Already in the early Middle Ages, you have the dominant focus and questions are all dealing with how to explain that mystery, that bread and wine are Christ's body and blood. But you also see there an increase in people speaking, not just of the liturgy in general as a sacrifice or an offering. We see that in many writings of the early Church Fathers. But you start to see a particular speaking of the sacrament itself as a sacrifice. For much of medieval theology, that's about as far as it goes. Simply, it's a sacrament and it's a sacrifice. There's some discussion by Aquinas in the 13th century, Gabriel Beale in the 15th century, about how to explain that relationship between the sacrifice that is spoken of in the Mass and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The key thing to know is that at the time of the Reformation, there is no definitive set theology of the sacrifice of the Mass. It's actually Martin Luther's objections that actually helped spur Rome on towards clarifying this issue. Matthew Block, in his interview with you last week, made a very good point, and I encourage your listeners to go back and listen to that interview. He makes this point. Roman Catholics, Ratzinger included, acknowledge that the Church's understanding of different doctrines develops. It has deepened, you might say, over time, and that's certainly the case with the doctrine of the sacrifice of the Mass. Now, we'll get to Luther the issue in Luther's day in a moment, but fast forward to more recent times. There's a very common caricature heard in Protestant circles that Catholics re-sacrifice Christ, or they believe that they are repeating the crucifixion. Again, in past generations, that language does come up from time to time in Catholic circles, but that's not what the Catholic Church officially teaches, and it is important for us as Lutherans to be fair to what they actually say and teach. So what the Catholic Church teaches on the sacrifice of the Mass is that the sacrifice of the Mass and the sacrifice offered by Christ on the cross are not different, but one and the same. 
visually, externally, what you see, they, are, they look different, but the victim, that is what is offered on the cross and on the altar, is the same. It's Christ, and the one who offers the sacrifice on the cross and at the altar is also the same. It is Christ. The Roman Catholic Church then explains the obvious difference between these two visually different things. The way that sacrifice is offered is different. On the cross in history, it's bloody, and it's a historical event. In the Mass, it's unbloody, and it's represented over and over again. The other thing is that the Roman Church teaches that because the Church is united to Christ, He is her head, that in the Mass she participates in offering that sacrifice. Before Vatican II, the emphasis was on the priest as the one offering the sacrifice. That's now been broadened a bit to it's the whole Church. Going back to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, if any listeners have a copy, this is all set forth in paragraphs 1364 through 1368. What you also have in the 20th century is a development of this idea of representation, that the events of salvation, especially Christ's crucifixion, is somehow made present in each Mass. And that really picks up in the liturgical movement in Germany in the mid-20th century. It spreads from there. So now even some Lutherans will speak this way of the events of salvation being somehow made present in the liturgy. But that's what the Roman Church officially teaches when it speaks of the Mass as a sacrifice. With that said, why at the time did Martin Luther reject the sacrifice of the Mass? Yeah, already in 1520, so pretty early on, Luther has this in his target sites. In his treatise on the Babylonian captivity of the Church, where Luther goes after the whole medieval sacramental system, Luther lays out three what he calls captivities of the sacrament. First two, withholding the cup from the laity, and then the second, the doctrine of transubstantiation. But the third and most wicked abuse, Luther says, is the sacrifice of the Mass. And from then on, for the rest of his life, Luther goes after this with as much literary venom as he does few other things because he sees it all based on the presumption that we offer to God something that Christ already has and that no one other than Christ can offer. And Luther's convinced, right, Christ needs no help in offering himself as the sacrifice for us. And then secondly, because Christ clearly gives the sacrament, as he says in the Gospels, as a testament, as a gift, it is the bequeathing of his goods through his will, how then can any man presume to take that, what is given to us as gift, and offer it to God? So the objection is not just that it's this thought that by doing something we're pleasing God. That's a broader problem of works righteousness. But what really gets Luther fired up especially is to think that we can participate in an active way with Christ's saving sacrifice. For Luther, that is the highest, grossest idolatry. How did Ratzinger then respond to Martin Luther's rejection of the sacrifice of the Mass? Well, first and quite significant is that he first seeks to understand Luther. And here again is where we see his honesty, his respectability as a theologian, even when he disagrees with the person he's responding to. He summarizes Luther's position quite well. We must reject any 
ungodly attempt to placate God by offering him our own works, our own accomplishments to satisfy him and earn salvation, that the, the emphasis of Luther, the direction of faith, is of one receiving divine favor, not offering something. It's God's saving work in Christ Jesus that suffices once for all. And this may surprise some listeners, but Ratzinger goes on to say this basic summary can be arrived at quite apart from Luther and simply from a direct reading of the New Testament. So he then asks concerning this language in the Roman Church's liturgy, this language of the sacrifice, does this not assume that we men should and could give something to God? Does this not show that we think of ourselves as equal partners to God who could barter one thing for another with him? We give him something so that he will give us something. And Ratzinger says Luther is right in his emphasis that our own gifts cannot suffice. It must be the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice in which God himself gives the true sacrifice, and that is what Christ does. Now, all that is very refreshing for a Lutheran to hear from a Roman Catholic, from a future pope. And yet, Ratzinger still disagrees with Luther. He contends for the classic Roman position. And he does this on the basis of two main points. The first is that he understands the union of the Christian with Christ to be in all things, and above all, Christ Jesus' total self-offering in love to the Father. That is what Ratzinger sees Christ doing on the cross. Now, this gets us to a very significant point. Ratzinger does not hold to the vicarious satisfaction as we Lutherans understand it. He does speak of Christ's vicarious offering, but what that means for Ratzinger is that Christ is the only one who has done what man ought to do, and that is totally offer oneself in love to the Father. And so in Christ doing that on the cross, and us being united to Christ, we are then able to do that. We are taken up into his perfect obedience. He sees that as not only possible for the Christian, that is necessary for the Christian to do. And now he does insist this has to begin with God, but we don't remain passive objects. He says this, Christ truly accepts us and takes us up so that we ourselves become active with his support and alongside him so that we ourselves cooperate and join in the sacrifice with him, participating in the mystery ourselves. So our human work is united to Christ's redemptive sacrifice. He also then takes up this idea I mentioned earlier, that it's not just the benefits of Christ's sacrifice that are present and distributed to us in the Holy Communion, but the very event of the crucifixion itself is somehow present in the liturgy, not just a cognitive remembrance. And so we're joined to and participate in that event. Pastor Andrew Gerke is our guest. We're talking about the late Pope Benedict's study of Lutheran theology. On the other side, we will discuss the movements within Roman Catholicism that shaped his ideas regarding Lutheran theology. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the new Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org 
or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The new Concordia commentary on John 7-2-12-50. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. simplyclassical.com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the late Pope Benedict's study of Lutheran theology with Pastor Andrew Garricky. He has written a Master of Sacred Theology thesis on Joseph Ratzinger and his interest in Lutheran dialogue. So, Andrew, what are the resourcement and liturgical movement, and how did these movements within the Roman Catholic Church shape Ratzinger's ideas regarding Lutheran theology? Yeah, the resourcement, it's a French title because it's a movement that began in France in the early 20th century. Over the decades, it spread throughout Europe, and it basically it sought to bring the emphasis in the life of the Catholic Church and study back to the earliest sources, the Church Fathers reading them directly, the Scriptures, and then also the liturgy. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Catholic theology, it was often done by studying manuals and commentaries of theology written in the post-Reformation era. It was greatly shaped by the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. At first, the ressourcement is controversial. It's eyed with suspicion. Many of its first advocates are censured uh, by the very office that Ratzinger himself would serve as prefect in. But eventually, it really came to dominate the Second Vatican Council through its adherents, including Ratzinger. So that's the ressourcement. The liturgical movement, again, began in France in the late 19th century, 
gradually gained steam through the early 20th century. Early on, it simply sought to bring the public liturgy into the center of Christian piety. So rather than a Christian's heart of devotion being just praying the rosary during Mass, which at the time was in Latin, much of it prayed silently by the priest, the liturgical movement early on sought to teach the people what was being said, what was going on, so that they could better follow and participate in the prayers of the Mass. There was also an emphasis on Gregorian chant being restored to pride of place. As time goes on, there's more of a move to make changes in the liturgy itself to foster what is called active participation. So this is where you get moves for the use of the vernacular, at least in parts of the Mass. Also, some early efforts and experimentation with the priest facing the people for part of the Mass. This is also the context for the development of that idea that the events of salvation are made present in each Mass, that that is how God's grace comes to man today. That thought is actually developed out of a rejection of Lutheran theology, the idea we as Lutherans hold that we receive salvation by receiving the benefits of Christ's work. Instead, with the liturgical movement, you get this school of thought that those events themselves become present. So Ratzinger's connection to both of these begins very early in his theological formation. One of the leading figures of the liturgical movement in Germany is one of Ratzinger's teachers. He was also exposed to the ressourcement early on. One of the main French theologians, Henri de Lubac, wrote a book that was quite influential on Ratzinger. And Ratzinger's first doctoral work in Germany, in order to teach in the university, you actually have to have two doctorates. Well, Ratzinger's first doctoral study was on Augustine, the doctrine of the Church, and that's where he really dives into what it means that the Church is united to Christ as her head. And so from a very early stage and throughout the rest of his life, he's thinking about the liturgy, he's thinking about the Church's relation to Christ, what the Church is, what she is doing in worship, and he's doing that in a context where Luther and Lutheran theology is very much on the scene. How did Ratzinger contribute to Vatican II? Well, there's four sessions of the Second Vatican Council, spanning from 1962 to 1965. At the first session, Ratzinger was simply the personal theological advisor to one of the cardinals from Germany attending the council. Already there, and really in the preparatory work leading up to the council, Ratzinger was active in slowing down deliberations anew on the basis of the fruits of the Ressourcement when it came to the doctrine of the Church or Revelation, how God makes himself known. He was not as involved in the Council's discussion of worship and liturgy. After that first session, he's then appointed as an official theological advisor to the Council, one of the so-called periti, as a theological advisor. And so he was there for the whole thing. He wrote a little theological journal of his time there, and that's available in English. As an aside, with his death, you have the passing of the last council father who was there at all four sessions. There are still five men alive today who participated at the council, but Ratzinger is the last one who was there for all four, and he was the last major player, we might say. So with his death, we've really come to the end of an era there. Where did Ratzinger tend to agree with Luther? Well, as I previously mentioned, as far as Luther's basic problems 
with how the Mass was at times spoken of a sacrifice in the medieval church. Ratzinger agrees. It can't just be man proffering his own works. More generally, when it comes to worship, Ratzinger speaks very much like Luther, that worship, broadly speaking, cannot be self-invented. He says at one point, if God does not reveal himself, man is clutching at empty space. Real liturgy implies that God responds and reveals how we can worship him in any form. Liturgy includes some kind of institution. It cannot spring from imagination, our own creativity. Then it would remain just a cry in the dark or mere self-affirmation. Very similar to how Luther comments about God establishing worship himself, comments that come up throughout Luther's commentary on Genesis. Ratzinger also emphasizes quite strongly that Christ must be the center of the liturgy and worship. It's not simply a circle of people closed in on themselves, as he often speaks of it. The focus must be on the Lord who is there with his people. Many Protestants who took up the liturgical movement in the middle of last century, for many of them, that simply meant they saw the liturgy as the work of the people. It's about what the people do. And even the Lord's Supper more often is called the Eucharist, it was all about the Church's act of thanksgiving. And Ratzinger and Luther alike would take issue with such an understanding of worship. Where did Ratzinger critique Luther in other areas? Well, first off, I want to say that despite his best efforts, it does seem Ratzinger doesn't always totally grasp Luther's views. There's one place where Ratzinger summarizes Luther's understanding of worship as receiving only and not giving. Well, receiving is certainly the beginning of worship for both Luther and for Ratzinger. It's the chief thing for Luther. But Luther does go on, our confessions as well. Melanchthon does this marvelously in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, speaks of the active response of faith in thanksgiving in worship. Besides the understanding of the Mass, Ratzinger sees Luther's strong emphasis on faith alone and the certainty of salvation for the individual Christian as given too much weight. That's too much of a focus on the individual. A particular question that comes up to run the show in Everything for Luther, that it just seems to dominate everything. So an example, perhaps, that would be helpful is in our catechism, Luther has us confess the main thing in the sacrament is the bodily eating and drinking along with the words which bestow forgiveness, life, and salvation to those who believe it. Well, you can compare that with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which lists seven things. This is what's going on in the sacrament. It unites us with Christ. It separates us from sin. It forgives venial sins. It preserves us from future sins. It renews the unity of the Church, binds us to the poor. It fosters unity of all Christians. So Ratzinger wants to kind of broaden the central question beyond the individual faith and the certainty of salvation for the individual Christian. That's probably the other major significant way they diverge. Why does disagreement remain between Lutherans and Catholics on the Eucharist? Well, if we go back to the three captivities of the sacrament Luther lists in 1520, still to this day, the Partaking of Christ's blood isn't necessarily present there. Lay people receiving from the cup is an option. It's encouraged by the Roman Catholic Church today, but it's still only an option. 
And yet, as Lutherans, from Luther on, we point directly to Christ's institution that includes the cup. We can't just say, well, we're not going to do that for whatever reason. So the, the centrality of the words of institution. Rome also still holds to transubstantiation. That's not so much a huge issue for us. It's a bit much to insist that, as a doctrine, a particular philosophical argument for how this mystery takes place. But really, the central issue from Luther's day remains. Can we say that there is an act of sacrifice in the Holy Communion, in connection to Christ's body and blood, in which man plays an active role? Roman Catholics say yes, Lutherans say no. Ratzinger's interaction with Luther and Lutheran theology, I think, gives us some helpful, specific issues and questions on this matter that we can continue to explore, consider, and and have ongoing dialogue. The late Pope Benedict's study of Lutheran theology is our topic. Pastor Andrew Gerke is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Witness magazine interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. You can receive an annual print and digital subscription in 2023 for less than $20. Learn more at cph.org slash witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness Magazine. On the other side, what did Ratzinger as Pope Benedict do to further Lutheran-Catholic interaction? Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Evangelical and Catholic. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org.
back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the late Pope, Benedict's study of Lutheran theology with Pastor Andrew Gerke. Andrew, what did Ratzinger do as Pope Benedict to further Lutheran-Catholic interaction? On an everyday level, I think most of all in his writings, Lutherans can read and find much to agree with and commend, particularly his Jesus of Nazareth series and, and talk about with Roman Catholic friends, as well as just his fair and honest interaction with the chief teacher of our church and our confessions. That's a model for how we can proceed long after he has died. More formally, it was during Benedict's waning years as Pope that there were some initial moves towards a dialogue between confessional Lutheran churches and the Vatican. That dialogue did take place. The first round has been completed. There's a final report available online. That all took place under Francis, but the ball got rolling during Benedict's pontificate. And again, I really commend your interview last week with Matthew Block on Lutheran-Catholic dialogue. As Pope, Benedict was perceived as wanting to mitigate the results of Vatican II. Is that an accurate perception? Mitigate the council? Not at all. He was there. He was an active participant shaping the council's direction and the documents that were adopted. It's more in terms of how the reforms of Vatican II were implemented, specifically in matters of liturgy. He made no qualms about saying that he didn't think that happened very well, and that the liturgy had just come to be seen as the product of scholars and experts developing separately from what he calls the living tradition of the Church, what is handed down over time, and from time to time is pruned, cut back. He's also very concerned that it kind of came to be seen as the plaything of worship committees. Oh, we can do what we want. It's all about us. He sought most prominently in his papacy through his liturgical celebrations, not so much just to reintroduce older ceremonies or items for their own sake, but he wanted to show continuity that in the Roman Catholic Church, not everything that came before the 60s was thrown out. But even more so, I think he was calling attention to the Lord who is at the center of the Church's worship, that that's where the focus needs to be. And the liturgy ought to be conducted and constructed in a way that confesses that. Now, what that means for him and for us as Lutherans will be different in certain aspects, but there's quite a bit of overlap there that we can rejoice in. You had mentioned this a bit earlier, but do you think that Benedict's interests and interaction with Lutheran theology show a way forward for Lutheran-Catholic dialogue? Absolutely. Again, I think just as Lutherans can read his writings, which is very accessible, there's much that we can agree with and rejoice in. That allows ongoing conversation with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, as well as give consideration to what he points out as problematic in Lutheran theology, and we can hone in on things that we see there that might be problematic for us as Lutherans, and those can be things to talk about in the years to come. How did Ratzinger respond to liberal biblical scholarship? He saw it as bankrupt. In his three-volume series, Jesus of Nazareth, he goes after the whole enterprise of higher critical New Testament exegesis that is essentially built on filtering out from the biblical text the Christ of faith in order to somehow extract and find the real Jesus of history. 
In his first volume, he says this, the alleged findings of scholarly exegesis have been used to put together the most dreadful books that destroy the figure of Jesus and dismantle the faith. He says, in contrast to that of his own approach, quote, for my portrayal of Jesus, I trust the Gospels. He insists that the Bible needs to be read from what he calls a hermeneutic of faith. That is, this is a book not given for academic study to be dissected on a laboratory table. It's given to the church. Now, academic study, again, Ratzinger is an academic. That, that has a role. It can give insight to us for better understanding, but that is an insufficient aim in itself. And even in his spiritual testament, what was released upon his death, he goes after, he, he names names in the higher critical enterprise of studying Scripture and how it's divorced from faith, divorced from the Church. In contrast to that, I just want to read a little bit from his final volume in his Jesus of Nazareth series, where we just celebrated the Feast of Epiphany. He just has a delightful meditation that really illustrates his approach to the Scriptures. He's speaking of the Magi stopping in Jerusalem and what happens there. So this is what he says. The wise men have arrived at the king's palace in Jerusalem, which they presume must be the place of the promise. They inquire after the newborn king of the Jews. This is a typically non-Jewish expression. In Jewish circles, people would speak of the king of Israel. In fact, this Gentile title, king of the Jews, does not reappear until Jesus' trial and the inscription over the cross, in both cases used by the Gentile pilot. So we could say that here, as the first Gentiles inquire after Jesus, there are already echoes of the mystery of the cross, a mystery that is inseparably linked with Jesus' kingship. These echoes can be heard clearly in the reaction to the Magi's question about the newborn king. We read, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The exegetes point out that in Herod's case, it was quite understandable that he was troubled by this news of the birth of a mysterious pretender to the throne. Less understandable, though, is the fact that all Jerusalem seems to have been troubled as well. This element could be an anticipation of Jesus' regal entrance into the holy city on the eve of his passion, when Matthew says that the whole city was quaking. In this way, the two scenes, both in some way manifesting Jesus' kingship, are linked to one another and to the passion theme. So just a marvelous tying together of the events of Jesus' life, the whole picture set together and again, you really see Jesus' impending passion set forth in Ratzinger's understanding of the Scriptures already as the Magi come to worship him. Finally, how would you contrast Benedict with Pope Francis? Benedict was a theologian. He was very concerned with speaking clearly, precisely. You always know what he means when he speaks and writes. Much of the confusion in the Roman Catholic Church with the Francis papacy has been sown by ambiguity, either in what Francis says as much as what he doesn't say. Francis has tended to focus more on a message of mercy to those who are poor, to those who are, as he says, on the peripheries. The concern of many in the Roman Catholic Church has been that this is at the expense of a clear articulation of doctrinal truth. Benedict Cardinal Ratzinger is also well-known for bringing various people with various views to the table and listening to what everyone else has to say before he spoke. 
he knew that many were attached to the older form of the Mass, for example, whether that was because of fond memories from their youth or maybe even just these growing numbers of younger people who had no experience of life before Vatican II and yet who found the older form of the Mass to be helpful to them and to their faith. Francis, it seems, that once he has an impression of someone or impression of a group, that impression sticks no matter what may be learned or come about later. So if you listen, Francis often speaks of rigidity, specifically in relation to those who prefer more traditional worship, the older form of the Mass. For whatever reason, that impression was made, and so it comes up again and again. He sees the older form of the Mass as something to be managed and contained as much as possible, with his openly stated hope that in good time, those who are attached to that older form will come to grow into and receive the Vatican II form of the Mass exclusively. Much of the differences between them are seen in just style and writing. I think we're beginning to see many more examples and some clear indications of their relationship in these coming days, coming weeks, and months, as upon Benedict's death, his private secretary, Bishop Georg Ganswein, is releasing in just two days, I think, a book on what his service under Benedict was like both before and after his resignation as Pope. We've already heard him say that Francis's restrictions on the Tridentine Mass hurt Benedict's heart, so we're just going to have to wait and see. Pastor Andrew Garrick, he is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Omaha, Nebraska. He is author of a Master of Sacred Theology thesis titled Cooperatoris Sacrificii, an examination of Joseph Ratzinger's critique of Luther on the sacrifice of the Mass in light of the influences of the Resourcement and liturgical movement. Andrew, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you, Todd. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss FDA claims that Plan B isn't an abortion pill. Our guest will be Dr. Donna Harrison. Pastor Tom Baker will lead us in a Sunday School lesson on the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11 and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com.